Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. This is part two of the story of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire in New York, an event which will mark its 110th anniversary on the 25th of March 2021. This is the second instalment of a three-part series. If you haven't heard part one, it's worth checking that out first. As explained in part one, this is a joint project created by myself, Finn DeWire, and Hope Seedtar. Hope lives in Manhattan and holds a master's in psychology and a PhD in education from the Catholic University of America. She's the award-winning author of 25 historical and contemporary romance novels, including Operation Cinderella, formerly optioned by Fox, and a founder and curator of the Manhattan Lady Jane Salon reading series from 2009 to 2020. Irish Eyes, currently on submission, is Hope's women's historical fiction set on the Iron Islands and Gilded Age Manhattan. Her screenplays for so far include Stolen Kiss, a female body heist feature with Emmy award-winning producer and director Linda Yellen, now in development. You can find out more at hopectar.com and follow her on Twitter at HopeTar, where she shares cool ephemera and fun historical snippets. There's links in the description below. Finally, before we begin, a word on the sources used in the podcast. The series follows the lives of some of the poor in early 20th century New York people who lived on the margins. One of the individuals featured in the series is Annie Doherty, who was born in Donegal in 1886. She emigrated to the USA in 1905 and lived there until at least 1920. Her age and life experience indicates she was the same Irish woman who appears in New York records in 1911 and plays a pivotal role in the following events. As you will hear, it is not possible to say with complete certainty the two women are the same individual. But at the very least, their combined life experience is certainly one common to Irish people in New York, which shaped the following events. The second individual is Celia Walker, for whom we have a complete unbroken historical record, from her emigration as a young child to her death. Sound in the series is by Jason Looney. Additional narrations in this episode are by Hope Tarr and Stephanie Lord. Stephanie is the co-host of the Irish Mythology podcast, which is well worth checking out. When Annie Doherty arrived in New York in 1905, the play From Rags to Riches, which first opened in 1903, was still popular in city theatres. 
From rags to riches followed the exploits of two impoverished orphans who, despite various travails and the dangers posed by the tenements in New York, ended up vastly wealthy through good fortune. It was the ultimate dream of many an emigrant to New York City, even if unattainable for most. A few hours in a theatre, watching the performance, provided an escape from the realities of emigrant lives dominated by long hours and often tedious, difficult jobs. However, while the rags-to-riches story might have been a dream that few realised, immigrants to the US frequently did enjoy improvements in life that were unattainable back in Europe. Indeed, it was this potential bettering of living standards that made the experience of leaving one's kith and kin and relocating to the US a risk worth taking. Experiences like those of Mary Healy, an Irish emigrant who had arrived in New York in the early 1850s, illustrated the modest but nevertheless substantial improvements that the likes of Annie Doherty and her sister Mary or Celia Walker could aspire to. Mary Healy had arrived in New York in 1852 in the aftermath of the Great Irish Famine. She, like many of her generation, had faced a desperate bind. Presumably only able to afford one ticket, she had left her only daughter, Judy, back in Ireland. However, in New York, Mary had found work as a fruit seller and by 1855, Judy was able to join her mother in America. Indeed, that year, Mary opened a savings account at the Emigrant Industrial Savings Bank, founded in 1850 by members of the Irish Emigrant Society. Mrs Healy was also well enough off to let an average three to four room tenement flat for $11 per month. Flats at this time were generally priced at three to four dollars per room, with ground floor units the most coveted and most expensive, largely because of their proximity to the main exit in the all too often frequent event of a fire. Over the following decade and a half, Mary Healy would continue to save. By 1869, her account balance reached nearly $1,000, the rough equivalent of less than $20,000 today. Not a fortune, surely, but a respectable nest egg for one who'd started out with next to nothing. Mary Healy's experiences were not unique. Many famine Irish who arrived in rags may not have attained riches, certainly, but did eventually attain a level of comfort unimaginable to siblings and friends who had remained in Ireland. That said, while earning a living wage may have been possible in New York City, it wasn't always easy. While Mary Healy saved a considerable sum over the space of 18 years, day-to-day life was often a struggle and remained so at the turn of the 20th century when Annie Doherty and Celia Walker arrived in the city. The conditions in most factories in New York and other large cities were appalling, not least in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory where Annie Doherty and Celia Walker were both working by 1911. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, founded by Russian emigrants Max Blank and Isaac Harris, started out on Wooster Street in present-day Soho, south of Houston Street, now a posh shopping and residential enclave, but not so in the early 1900s. By 1902, Blank and Harris moved their mass merchandising enterprise of women's shirtwaists, blouses, into the ninth floor of the modern 10-storey Ash Building at 23-29 Washington Place, adjacent to fashionable Washington Square Park. For those familiar with New York University campus, the Ash Building, now the Brown Building, is just a two minutes walk from Glucksman House, the university's centre for Irish and Irish American studies. Completed in 1901, the Ash Building was named after its owner, Joseph A. Ash. 
The move to the Washington Square skyscraper reflected the enormous success Blank and Harris had enjoyed thus far as a major manufacturer of the shirtwaist or ladies' blouse, a garment that had come to embody the sweeping societal changes underway in turn-of-the-century America. Equivalent to today's jeans in mass-market appeal, this high-collared, buttoned-up ladies' blouse was nothing short of revolutionary, the go-to apparel for the new women from shop girls like Annie Doherty or Celia Walker to middle-class women making up the growing white-collar female labour force in offices, schools, stores and at telephone exchanges. Whether a woman sought employment from necessity or personal fulfilment, there was no arguing that women's roles were evolving beyond the home and that comfortable, movable clothing was required to meet the moment. As their business expanded, Blank and Harris, themselves emigrants from Russia, enjoyed more lavish lifestyles. Styled the shirtwaist kings, both men left tenement flats and lower Manhattan's east side for spacious townhouses referred to as brownstones on the upper west side overlooking the Hudson River. There, they were waited on by live-in staff. Harris employed four servants, Blank, five. By the end of the decade, each was driven to work in chauffeured cars. These men were the exceptions that the notion of rags-to-riches stories were built around. By 1908, the shirtwaist kings hit a record of $1 million in revenues. The factory produced more than a 1,000 shirtwaists a day, making the Triangle the largest manufacturer of blouses in New York City and one of the major garment concerns on the East Coast, with additional plants in Syracuse, Yonkers, Boston and Philadelphia. Blank and Harris quickly expanded their venture to take over the Ash Building's 8th and 10th floors as well sufficient space to accommodate by then more than 400 employees. The 10th and top floor was used as their corporate office. More than 100 feet above street level, they could peer out over the leafy treetops of Washington Square Park, by then remade into a European-styled pleasure garden where nannies pushed their charges in their prams and summertime concerts were held. The conditions on the factory floors were considerably less Elysian. While the shirtwaists manufactured by the largely female employees may have embodied the changing role of women in society, it also reflected deep contradictions. The very women who made this liberating garment for their better-off sisters were being forced into ever more dangerous working conditions to maximise profits. Women's lives were changing, but it wasn't all progress. Indeed, Isaac Harris had designed the layout of the sewing floor himself, arranging the tables in a way that would minimise conversations between the workers and increase productivity. While it might appear that Harris was an employer who paid attention to detail, his hands-on approach also pointed to a much more callous attitude towards his employees in the Triangle factory, profit at any cost. In early 20th century New York, regulation surrounding workers' rights was weak. The movement for compulsory public education in the United States would not gain momentum until the early 1920s. Across the US, high school graduates were a rarity. By 1915, only an estimated 18% of the population aged 25 and older had completed high school and only about 14% of people aged between 14 to 17 remained in school. Indeed, often children of the poor worked long hours. This was something Annie Doherty and Celia Walker were well acquainted with. In the Triangle Factory, they worked alongside children like the 14-year-old Rosalie Maltese, one of the Triangle's youngest employees who worked at the factory full-time with her older sister Lucia and their mother Catherine. 
in a New York where labour laws were lax and manual labour guaranteed to be plentiful given the constant influx of immigrants, workers were all too often regarded as replaceable cogs in an ever-churning machine. Six-day work weeks were the standard practice. The concept of a weekend was non-existent. Sunday, the Christian Sabbath, was everyone's precious one day off. The owners of the Triangle Factory, Blank and Harris, pressed their advantage wherever possible to wrench the utmost productivity from their workers. Their employees worked from 7am to 8pm, Monday through to Friday, and a shortened day on Saturdays. While many other businesses in the textile industries adopted the practice of letting their workers off at lunchtime on a Saturday, Blank and Harris kept their employees until 4.45pm. This meant that Jewish workers like Celia Walker had to break the Sabbath to keep their jobs. This despite the fact that their employers, the shirtwaist kings, being themselves Jewish. There was also certain policies and practices at Triangle that were not only mean-spirited but flat-out unsafe. Though the factory was located in what was then considered a skyscraper, no consideration was given to fire safety, not even something as simple as practising fire drills. Indeed, Previous attempts by the city's fire department chief, Edward F. Croker, to weigh in on the Ash Building's safety failings while construction was still underway, including advocating for installation of sprinkler systems, were dismissed by the builder as being unnecessary and too expensive. Although the Ash Building was advertised as fireproof, this boast did not equate to safer working conditions. Stair landing doors opened inward, not outward. Then, as now, if stairwell doors do not allow for re-entry, and a stairwell becomes impassable, it can jeopardise the lives of those using it as a means of escape. This design flaw was already on record as contributing to a terrible loss of life in the Chicago Iroquois Theatre Fire of 1903, where several hundred people had been killed. The measures and policies Blank and Harris did implement upon taking occupancy only heightened the possibility of peril for their workers. Doors were locked from the outside to prevent employees taking unauthorised breaks. Every time a worker left the shop floor, she would have to get permission from supervisors. Employees were refused access to the main entrance, instead herded through rear exits at the end of the day when their purses and bags were checked, a humiliating practice to deter stealing. Meanwhile, on the factory floors, all available space was utilised whilst fire escapes were used for adjunct storage, sometimes blocked with bolster fabric and extra sewing machines. Wages at the Triangle were competitive with those at similar apparel concerns, which is to say, abysmal. Seamstresses like Annie Doherty were paid on a per-piece rate, meaning if anything happened to their sewing machine or they had to take a break to go to the bathroom, this would affect wages. One former Triangle employee, Pauline Newman, who worked at the factory from 1901 to 1911, would later recall. The operators, their average wage was, as I recall, because two of my sisters worked there, they averaged around six, seven dollars a week. If you were very fast, because they worked piecework, if you were very fast and nothing happened to your machine, no breakage or nothing, you could make around ten dollars a week. But most of them, as I remember, and I do remember them very well, They averaged about $7 a week. There was no overtime pay, not even when the work extended to 9pm, though the women might receive on occasion apple pies the size of a woman's palm for sustenance. Workers who arrived to work five minutes late would be docked half a day's pay. The company charged employees for needles and for the electricity that ran the machines. When women first started in the factory, they could earn as little as $2 a week. In the Triangle, as in most garment factories, Men were assigned to the higher skilled, better paying positions, such as pattern cutters or collar makers. Even so, 
$12 was the maximum weekly wage. How far did these meagre salaries stretch for the likes of an emigrant like Annie Doherty or Celia Walker? Rents in tenements varied but frequently ranged from $9 to $15 a month in New York at the turn of the 20th century. According to a 1913 journal of home economics written by the home economist Mabel Hyde Ketteridge, the typical home of a working class family was crowded, somewhat disorderly and without modern conveniences. The article described a New York City apartment as follows. A home I know well is a fair sample. A four-room flat, rent $19, nine in family. It is furnished with cheap elaborateness. The chandelier is draped with tissue paper. The shelves are hung with ruffles and covered with paper napkins. In this, as in the home of every ambitious foreigner, is the plush parlor set. This family of nine has a boarder to help pay the rent. He is a night worker and in the daytime can always be seen asleep in one of the beds. All five children after school help the mother at flower making. They receive eight cents a gross for the flowers, and the tiny red leaves and yellow stamens are everywhere. There is a bathtub, but the clothes wringer and last winter sleds are always kept in it. This is not the home of a very poor family. The father earns $12 a week, two girls are in a factory, and the flower making brings in a certain income. Costs rose in winter when fuel was an essential in the bitterly cold New York weather. In the spring and summer, five-cent blocks of ice would be purchased to keep milk and other perishables from spoiling. After purchasing the occasional necessities, like clothes and shoes, Annie Doherty, like most emigrants, would have been expected to send any remaining money back to Ireland. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It was in these harsh working conditions that Annie Doherty found employment, presumably as a seamstress, the profession she had learned back in Ireland thanks to the revival of the needlework and lace-making industry sparked by the philanthropist Alice Hart. Meanwhile, Celia Walker was employed as a finisher, tasked with inspecting the finished shirtwaists and sending Annie that were found wanting back to the appropriate station for repair and redoing, a position that would have put her into direct one-to-one contact with nearly every employee in the factory, but especially sewing machine operators like Annie Doherty. Women had always made up the majority of workers employed by garment concerns, but by 1900, technological advances and increased consumer demand for inexpensive ready-made clothing carried what had begun as a cottage industry to the factory floor. While New York dominated this industry, producing more than 40% of all ready-made clothing in the US, such market conditions led to increased tensions and social unrest in the city. In 
Through the second half of the 19th century, workers through the US had been organising into trade unions. Employers often retaliated with violence, bringing in strike breakers, bribing local police to harass and legally arrest demonstrating workers, and sometimes even hiring private detectives like the infamous Pinkertons to intimidate and harass strikers. Strikes often escalated to major riots and even deaths. Still, trade unions enjoyed some success in traditionally male purviews such as coal mining and construction. But even in industries where women workers were welcome, women were often excluded from organising efforts. It was the New York coke makers who had founded the International Ladies' Garment Union, the ILGWU, in 1900. Events in 1909 would have solidified the union as the official voice for women needleworkers in the women's and children's garment industry, not only in New York City, but nationwide for decades to come. Given their appalling conditions, it was inevitable that the women working in the triangle would organise themselves into a trade union sooner or later. Through the later months of 1909, unrest swept through not only the workers in the Triangle factory, but the entire industry. And in November, workers in three large concerns, the Rosen Brothers, the Layerson Company and the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, went on strike. While the individual workplaces had their own unique concerns, they shared common grievances around pay, hours and dangerous working conditions. In November 1909, as New York was in the grip of a fiercely cold winter and garment factories were ramping up to produce the next spring's fashion, the Triangle workers went on strike part of an industry-wide walkout of 15,000 shirtwaist workers that became known as the Uprising of the 20,000. Crippling the industry, it was one of the largest strikes ever organised by working women anywhere in the world. An audacious move, but particularly so given that American women wouldn't win the right to vote for another decade following the passage of the 19th Amendment to the US Constitution. In hindsight, the demands of the strikers seem remarkably reasonable. A 52-hour working week, which would still see them working over eight hours a day, six days a week. They also demanded a 20% pay increase. After five weeks, the Rosen brothers settled their dispute, but Blank and Harris at the Triangle Factory held out, resolving to crush the union. Indeed, the shirtwaist kings had acted not only swiftly but preemptively, sacking the first 150 women and girls who had organised themselves into a union, claiming there was not enough work. However, the next day, they put an advert in the city papers for job vacancies, giving light to that assertion. This strike continued into December, the intrepid women and girls gathering daily to picket despite the cold. Blank and Harris now resorted to violence after bribing the city police, an institution dominated by the Irish-American community at the time. The strikers were harassed and assaulted. At the time, the police used contacts in the criminal underworld. 16 professional, what were called skullcrackers, were paid to start a brawl with the union men present. 98 women and girls were arrested, including the president of the Women's Trade Union League of New York. Through this strike's 13 weeks, the League promoted the union cause in the press and raised money for relief, bail and legal fees. Of the 723 workers arrested, 19 were sentenced to the women's prison on Blackwell's Island, today Roosevelt Island, but then colloquially known as Damnation Island, a dumping ground for the poor and indigent, especially those of immigrant origin. The prison was a horrific place by the standards of the day, a close cousin of the infamous Women's Insane Asylum, also on the island. The strike ended in February 1910 with a protocol of peace. The agreement met some of the strikers' demands, including improved pay and shorter hours. However, there was no recognition of the trade union's right to negotiate on behalf of the workers. Some of the striking triangle workers did not return to work. 
It's unclear, for example, if Annie Doherty was working at the factory or even if she was among the 150 who had gone out on strike. Celia Walker, however, left the Triangle during the 1909 strike and when she returned nearly two years later, it was, as an examiner, a position tasked with inspecting the finished garments and sending them back for cleaning or repair as needed. Despite the definite step up in status and pay of her new position, she would have cause to wish she'd stuck to her guns and stayed away from the factory permanently. While the memory of the strike faded from the attention of New Yorkers in wealthier parts of the city, the problems in the workplace were far from resolved. After the strike, the women had continued to toil in the dangerous conditions. The entire industry, indeed labour history in the US, would be upended by events in the garment industry in New York, in the Triangle specifically, less than two years after the strike. However, when the women came to the attention of wider New York society again, it would not be in the form of a strike they would re-enter history in the worst way imaginable. A little more than a year after the strike ended, the atmosphere on the Triangle's shop floors had calmed considerably. Animosities between the pro- and anti-strike factions and between the workers and management were, if not exactly forgotten, largely set aside as the spring of 1911 approached. The advance of March further solidified this sunnier mood. Within a few months, the workers would be able to enjoy daylight as they returned home from work, a luxury denied to them in the dark months of winter, save for Sundays. Some young women were recently engaged, showing off their shiny gold rings to their co-workers. Once wet, the lucky ones could look forward to leaving the factory permanently. On March the 25th, a Saturday, the weather was warmish and the next day, Sunday, was predicted to be fine as well, meaning everyone could make the most of their day off perhaps indulging in a stroll in one of the city parks or a modest shopping excursion to Grand Street, the Lower East Side's retail corridor that was a poor woman's equivalent to the more upmarket Ladies' Mile. As the clock hands crawled towards 4.45, quitting time, anticipation on the factory floor grew. Some workers hurried to finish up their last piece of the day, while others, like Rose Reiner, began discreetly gathering their coats and gloves and handbags then stepping into the dressing closet for a last look over in a full-length mirror. However, at 4.40pm, just five minutes before a quitting bell was to ring, a fire broke out on the factory's eighth floor, sending panicked workers stampeding down the stairs and into the elevator. Though the precise start of the fire remains unknown, once it began, the immediate aftermath was patently predictable. The stockpiles of textiles, the many bins of rags scattered about, acted as kindling, turning the shop floor into a tinderbox. From there, the fire quickly funneled through the elevator shaft and swept the factory's other floors, including the ninth floor, where 260 workers, including Annie Doherty and Celia Walker, worked. Realising the risks they now faced, panic gripped the Triangle employees. Those who tried to use the fire escapes found it little consolation. As petrified employees, poured onto the structure, it tore loose from its moorings and plunged down into the street below. Others scrambled for the freight elevators. However, one of these was not working. Meanwhile, the fire quickly funneled through the open elevator shaft and swept through the factory floors, sealing off the staircases and access to the roof. Tucked in their offices on the 10th floor, Blank and Harris were alerted to the fire by phone and escaped to safety by taking a stairwell onto the rooftop and then climbing over onto the adjacent building then as now owned by New York University. From there, university students helped guide them, their office staff and Blank's two young daughters and their nursemaid down to the safety of street level where already onlookers were gathering. 
On the ninth floor, however, employees such as Annie Doherty and Celia Walker remained unaware of the fire, working away at their stations until smoke filled the room and flames were already blocking the exits. To prevent employee theft, the factory owners Blanket Harris had ordered that the ninth floor doors be locked from the outside. To make matters worse, the telephone on the ninth floor was broken. When the call came from the switchboard operator on the tenth floor to clear out, the phone sat silent. While the tenth floor where Blank and Harris worked started to clear out, as did the eighth floor workroom, the 260 employees on the ninth floor stayed put. Although it was only a few minutes delay, the opportunity to escape was diminishing with each passing second. The factory's ninth floor would become known as the death floor with good reason. Four alarms were rung in 15 minutes and the first fire engines arrived on the scene in admirable time. But as much as the fire was the predictable outcome of entrenched employer negligence and greed, the breadth of its destruction, namely loss of life, also owed to the inadequacy of firefighting equipment and practices to meet the conditions of a rapidly rising industrial city. Though its 10 floors seem modest to the modern eye, the Ash Building was then considered to be a high-rise, one of the modern commercial and residential constructions cropping up all over the city. At the same time, the city's fire department was saddled with equipment and horse-drawn conveyances from the previous century. At the Triangle Fire Site, fire truck ladders fell short of reaching the ninth floor. The high-pressure hoses were likewise unequal to the task and life nets unable to withstand the velocity of bodies falling from so far above the ground. Indeed, most of the trapped chose to jump rather than stay to be burned alive. Hands clasped for courage, girls leapt in twos from as high as a hundred feet, over thirty metres, tearing through the nets, stretched out to receive them. The single jumpers fared no better, bouncing off the mesh as if made of rubber, one girl smashing through a plate glass sidewalk protector. When the first victims fell, bystanders mistook them for mannequins. Celia Walker stood at the ninth floor elevator shaft, working up the courage to jump. Operators of the two functional passenger elevators had been feverishly ferrying as many workers as could be crammed down to ground level, but by then neither one of them were coming back. The right elevator was stuck at the eighth floor, where the heat of the fire had bent its tracks. The left elevator was stalled at the lobby level, its roof bent beneath the weight of falling bodies. Celia had a choice to make and not much time in which to make it. The fire was closing in. She'd made it out of the workroom by leapfrogging over the sewing machine tables. But now, out in the hallway, mass panic was setting in. The first time I saw the elevator come up, the girls rushed in and it was filled in a second. When it came up again, the girls were all squeezing against the door. And the minute it opened, they all rushed in again. This time I thought I was going to be lucky enough to make it. But just as I got to the door, the elevator began to drop down. Somebody in front of me jumped. Soon I found myself standing at the edge, trying to hold myself back from falling into the shaft. I gripped the sides of the open door. Behind me, the girls were screaming. I could feel them pushing more and more. I knew that in a few seconds, I would be pushed into the shaft. I had to make a quick decision. I jumped for the center cable. I began to slide down. I remember passing the floor numbers up to five. Then something falling hit me. News of the fire quickly spread through the city below 14th Street. Drawn by the din of sirens and the climbing black tower of smoke, onlookers swelled Washington Park, spilling out onto the sidewalks and cobblestone streets. 
By 5pm, as many as 10,000 people had gathered. Some stood transfixed by the sheer magnitude of the disaster, mesmerised by the macabre spectacle playing out before them, horrified by what they saw, yet unable to walk away. Others, all too many working-class New Yorkers, gathered because they had loved ones or friends trapped inside. Pushing against the police barricades, fearful and desperate for information, they could do little more than wait and pray they would be reunited with their loved ones. In far too many instances, the bodies falling to the ground from the burning building proved to be their sisters, daughters, mothers or sweethearts, childhood friends or neighbours. In those tragic cases, the reunions with loved ones would take place later at Pier Morgue, the temporary morgue set up. For those congregated on Broadway near Wanamaker's department store, they might have received their first understanding of the breath of the disaster from another survivor on the ninth floor who'd escaped from the burning building by way of the adjacent New York University Law School roof. Multiple accounts, including those of the New York Herald and the Sun, describe Annie Doherty fleeing the building, her long red hair worked loose, her clothing burned off, her terrified face smoke-smudged. She ran through the busy Broadway Avenue near Wanamaker's and was said to have given a large shopping crowd the first intimation of the fire. Hysterical, she darted between the streetcars and the horse-drawn drays, shouting, Don't let them hurt me! Don't let them hurt me! Traffic slowed. A policeman named McGinn, perhaps one of those bribed to harass the girls, such as Annie during the 1909 strike, led the distraught young woman to the safety of the footpath. At first, she couldn't remember her name, saying, I don't know who I am. Eventually, she was calmed sufficiently to recall her ordeal, thusly. There was just a lot of smoke and a terrible heat with all the girls screaming and falling over each other. And then a little boy came over. I think his name was Solly something. And he said, come on, girls, I know a way out. He led us to the roof of the college building and then the students came out and led us up a ladder. Annie's immediate co-workers were less lucky. At least a dozen women working at sewing machines positioned near hers were burned or trampled to death or killed by jumping. Eventually, Officer McGinn managed to learn Annie's name and address and escort her home. In 30 minutes, it was all over. The sidewalk and street littered with corpses and bits of bodies. 146 people lay dead. Most of them immigrant women and girls from Eastern Europe and Southern Italy, the youngest just 14 years old. 78 more injured and maimed were taken to St. Vincent's Hospital, including Celia Walker. The next thing I knew was when I opened my eyes and I was lying on my back and I looked up into the faces of a priest and a nun who were trying to help me. I was in St. Vincent's Hospital. Everybody thought I was going to die. They found me at the bottom of the shaft. I had saved myself by my jumping. Others had fallen down the shaft on top of me and I suppose I was found by the firemen when they were removing the dead. I have often wondered how I was saved. I was very lucky. By sliding down the cable, I was far enough away from where most of the bodies landed on top of the elevator cage as they fell down the shaft. My head was injured, and I had a broken arm and a broken finger. I had a large searing scar down the middle of my body, burned by the friction of the cable which had cut through my clothing. In the hospital later, I was shown a large ripped piece of fur and fabric. One of the nurses said she thought it was just wonderful that I had enough presence of mind when I jumped to wrap something around my hands in order to save them and to be able to hold on to the cable. I know it was not presence of mind or courage. I think the right word is vanity. This was a new muff that I had bought after saving for many weeks. And fire or no fire, something in me made me hold on to it even while I jumped to save my life. 
Once recovered, Celia left the triangle, that time for good. A highly skilled garment worker, she was soon hired by a garment concern, the Mayer and Friedman Company, founded that same year of 1911. In the aftermath, New York was stunned. While fires and other workplace accidents were a feature of urban living at the turn of the 20th century, the grim possibility publicised by workers during the 1909 strike and before that by fire safety experts such as Fire Department Chief Croker, few could have forecast a calamity of this scale. The fire had been brought under control in just 30 minutes, but across the city and country a rage was building on behalf of the city's dead, no murdered women and girls, many of whom were immigrants or the first-generation daughters of immigrants who had come to New York in search of better lives for themselves and their families. Instead, ruthless employers had stripped them not only of their dreams, but shorn their promising young lives short. In the third and final episode, we will follow the aftermath of the Triangle Fire, which has cast a long shadow as a national symbol of workplace neglect and abuse and the deadliest industrial disaster to take place in the state of New York until the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com.